Welcome to Shed. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Andy Italiano. Andy has had a long career as a cameraman for Major League Sports, including the NFL, boxing, and March Madness. In this episode, Andy talks about growing up in racially divided Syracuse, his career in sports, and how the kneeling vigils in Chilmark following the murder of George Floyd inspired him to write a book called Love 411. You know, Andy, I was struggling a little bit thinking about how to encapsulate you and introduce you. In some ways, I feel like you're a bit of a renaissance man. How would you uh, describe who you are to our audience? I guess first I would describe myself as being from Syracuse, New York, because okay. that shaped me so much. How so? Um, I just grew up in a very racially charged area. Um was kind of taught a lot of racism when I was young, just growing up on the streets there. Um, Did you know you were being taught racism at the time? I didn't. I was just surviving and trying to fit in with the group and trying to, you know, have other guys, you know, protect me that were in my little group there. And, you know. Um, and what time period are we talking about? Oh, uh, well, I graduated high school in 83. Right, me too. Yeah. So this was, you know few years before that when i was you know um 10 10 to 15 mm -hmm. years old something like and that. and was it just in the street you were hearing this or was this in your home as well uh it was in my home too yeah. you know my father uh moved to syracuse and um he was out in california as an aeronautical engineer had a good job and a couple good jobs and then he just didn't really like working for people so he moved to syracuse um back to where his family was from and he tried to start a business so he couldn't get a loan um, and, you know, thought he was, um, you know, not treated fairly by the banks and stuff, had to get private money. And um, the neighborhood I lived in was a border of, uh, you know, below the tracks and above the tracks. And so there was a lot of uh, crime in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my house got robbed. I don't know, five or six times. And was this uh, kind of white black, or yeah. was it a mix? White, white black. black. Mm -hmm. Yep. And my father's uh, flower shop got vandalized a lot. Windows broken. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was just violent. Um, it was violent. It was violent. Yeah, it was violent. Were you a victim of violence back then? Uh, you know, I just kind of, I wasn't a, a leader. I would just kind of follow and keep quiet and try to fit in and not try to get my butt kicked. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like a good plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't know. I mean, like, uh, I didn't didn't really pay too much attention to what was going on. I just knew that go out in the streets, in the park or whatever, these are the things I had to do to survive. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, until I moved to California and started telling people about what my life was like growing up there, I didn't realize that it was that different than everybody else. When did you move to California? I moved to California in 1988. Okay. Yeah, my birthday. Packed up my little Ford and hopped out there. Was it a good decision? It was. I mean, knowing that, um, you know, I wanted to be in TV, I either had to be in New York or LA. So I had 350 bucks place to stay mm -hmm. and i said i'm either gonna go out there and until the money's gone they're gonna come home or i'm gonna go out there and try to get a job and see what happens and what happened i networked before i went out there all my contacts in syracuse so i had a big notebook of network 
contacts and uh, I was calling them before I went out there. I went out there, a couple of them panned out, not really. I started installing floors and I was bouncing at a bar in West Covina, which was kind of a, it was a tough, tough bar. Um, I learned a lot of lessons there. But what I did was I wasn't getting the leads I thought I would by all the networking. So I put on my fat tie, grabbed a handful of resumes, and I drove to Hollywood. Hmm. And I parked my car, and I just, anything that said production on it, I'd knock on the door. And as soon as I saw someone someone face-to-face, I'd say, hey, I want a job here. Hmm. I learned then that showing up, I got more, in that one afternoon, I got 10 times more leads than I did in months of trying to network over the phone or send wow. letters or anything like that. So it was a really important lesson to me that show up, show your face, show how you want the job. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for people to dismiss you. Hmm. And uh, a lot of times they'll just, you know, help you out just to get you out of their face. It seemed like to me, or mm-hmm. they, they sincerely wanted to help. But yeah, I worked at uh, Santa Fe communications. We did heart of the nation during the day. Mm-hmm. And then they would shut that down, and this is in Burbank. And then we'd they'd rent out the studio to Latin game shows and soap operas at night. <laughs> <laughs> so all the uh, religious folks would leave, mm-hmm. and then the limos would pull up, and all the you know the women, the Latin you know Hollywood movie stars or whatever wow. would get out and. and complete different. So um, just part of the studio I worked in, and from there. I started doing sports. That's what I really When you say loved. doing sports, what do you mean? Uh, working production mm-hmm. sports. First thing I did was boxing at the Fabulous Forum. I was holding a mic in the corner of the ring and getting splattered with blood and snot and all that stuff from boxing. And <laughs> I realized I want to be a little further away. And <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing camera. But that was the era of Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm-hmm. Showtime with the Lakers. So mm-hmm. I eventually got into the Lakers doing that. And wow. Then, you know, with the Lakers being so good, lots of networks would come in. And once the networks come in, you get to know relationships with the network directors. And I'd ask them to bring me on the road. And, and that's how my network career started with, with sports, doing camera work. And that's what you're doing now. I'm still doing it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's been a long time. NFL, Major League Baseball, March Madness. Yep, that's I kind of narrowed down what I wanted to do and pick my time off and uh, chase the dollars the best I could. I do the Padres in the summer. I shoot them while I rent my house here in the vineyard, and I do NFL in the fall, mm-hmm. and I do March Madness um, before I head to California. How'd you get to the vineyard, Andy? Uh, my neighbor... Um, his mom bought a place here, so we had the connection, and I always knew about it. Never really came out. One summer, we decided to come out. Their house was rented, so we slept in the car on a dirt road, um, checked it out, went to all the beaches, and it was fun. And we decided that we wanted to try to stay, so we went into a real real estate office and said, you know, we want to work the summer. We want to stay here. Um. What can we do? And then she said, come back in a few hours. We came back. And she said, okay, I got something for you guys. It was, this was a Saturday. She goes, you got to start on Monday. Um, we have a place for you to stay, and you have three jobs. Your rent will be taken out of the income from your jobs, and so you have a place to stay, and you just do the three jobs, and you can stay all summer. So we, me and my buddy Charlie, we bombed back to Syracuse, packed our car. We came out and um, 
came for the weekend, stayed the summer. We were uh, bouncing at the Atlanta Connection. Mm-hmm. Some great shows back then. I think you might have thrown me out of there one night. I'm not sure. <laughs> How I became a bouncer, I don't know. Um, but I guess I had that look or something. But um, then we were uh, line cooking at Nancy's Snack Bar. Sure. Making sure the lobster rolls were not overweight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a no-no? No. Don't want to go overweight on the lobster rolls. And then we were renting mopeds to tourists wow. coming off the boats. Mm-hmm. And we never worked together. We just, you know, when he was bouncing, I was cooking, vice versa. So it was stressful for me coming from Syracuse. I didn't really fit in with the New England kids. Um, neither one of us did. We were having a hard time connecting. So I'd always drive out to Menemsha and just sit on that beach at night and listen mm-hmm. to the bell. And it brought me right back to uh, where I needed to be. And uh, that's kind of fell in love with the island and just said, you know, I'm going to dream to live here someday and kind of begged, borrowed, and stole and made it happen, got in at the right time. Mm-hmm. So just love it more your dream, every day. Your dream has come true, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, I can hear the bell from my house now. So, it, you know, it's just I just love it here. I love the community. I love the natural aspects of it. It's just a special, special place. It is. It really yeah. is. So, Andy, you and I first met up at our kneeling vigil uh, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. the summer of protests after George Floyd was killed. And you were one of the people that was there all the time. I mean, I don't know if you were there every day. I, I certainly was there every day, but I was probably there five, six times a week. And it felt like just about every time I was there, you were there. Mm-hmm. What, what made you show up there to begin with? And why did you keep coming? Well, I would drive by before I was going, and I'd see everybody standing around and and doing their thing, and I thought it was cool. I'm like, okay, this is my town, small chill mark, tiny chill mark, and here we got some you know community people in the community that are standing up and doing what they believe, and you know, I wouldn't, I wasn't ready to stop by yet, but I'd drive by and I'd like yell out the window like, hey cool glad you're here mm-hmm. you know and people mm-hmm. would just kind of look at me like seemed like they were kind of mean mugging me and i was like <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know what to expect and then i drive by again and go so glad everybody's here and mm-hmm. drive back home and think about it and i said you know what? i'm gonna go so, so for people that don't know we uh started a kneeling vigil in memory of George Floyd and others that were killed by police violence. And each day, a group of us, sometimes as small as 10 and sometimes as big as 50 or 60, we would uh, hear the story of another person killed by police violence, and we would kneel for 9 minutes and 29 seconds in their honor and in memory of George Floyd. And it became quite a powerful little community, didn't it? It was, I mean, life-changing for me. It was amazing. It was you know, first when I went, I would just observe, and a lot of white folks, um, mature age and not old, mm-hmm. but m- mature folks, and um, I saw these people were very passionate, very caring people. Mm-hmm. I saw the empathy that everybody had and the compassion and how activated they were um, to make change and do things. And um, But what really stood out the most and still does is is the kneeling and you you hear these stories and there's thousands of them you could tell a story every day and you'd be here till you you know till the end of time telling stories 
And we tell a story about how someone was um, unjustly murdered mm-hmm. uh, at the hands of police, usually. And um, we'd kneel for 929. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't realize how impactful and how painful that would be. Painful physically. Mm-hmm kneeling for that long i'm like this hurts to kneel this long and to think that someone can kneel on someone's neck that long it just it just brought up an ever source of angst in me Mm -hmm. and um emotionally it hurt uh you know i'm suffering with all these people everybody's feeling the same way and these traumas that are coming up and thinking back and spiritually it hurt Mm because i just like this is not right um you know, and so I just really was drawn to it as painful of it as it was. I felt like we were going through it together. And, um, you know, I saw our group as, as a very positive thing, mm-hmm. as painful as it was. I saw that we, we dealt with this together. Um, people wanted justice and we were doing things about it. Mm-hmm. And so it was, um, it just became, it wasn't a lot of hobnobbing or talking. It was just we kind of went there and did our thing and right. felt the pain. And every time I left there, I was extremely motivated mm-hmm. to do more. Mm-hmm. How can I help more? How can I help more? And mm-hmm. and to this day, you know, I, I hang up on the Zoom calls now, and I'm I'm activated. I want to do something to help. Andy, how does a kid who grew up, you know, in the '70s and the '80s in Syracuse, where as you said, was a really uh, racially segregated and racist uh, area at that time. How do you grow up to be the guy who is seeking uh, social justice, racial change? And as you used to, to come up, because you know everybody would get a chance to get up and say a few words, and you would often get up and talk about love, which was really shocking in some ways, because not a lot of people were, were really talking about love but there's something that felt really good about hearing you bring that into our circle. Yeah. Um, I remember one time I got up and talked about love and nobody was talking about love at the time during these things. And, um, I got done talking and one of our members got up after me and he said, you know, you can talk about love all you want, but I want justice. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I feel you. I want justice too. Um, I can't go about it with a lot of anger and angst and um, aggressiveness because that's not what is best for me and it's not how I'm going to continue this fight. So in growing up in Syracuse, I just I saw so much hate and so much violence on a personal level and I just realized that it wasn't working for me so... I just decided that um, I'm going to proceed with this battle the best I could with love and compassion. Hmm. Were you thinking that way while you were still in Syracuse? No, no. Uh, You know, in Syracuse, it was just uh, survival mode, doing what I had to do to be protected by the group. And Mm -hmm. once I went out to California and um, I was married and then I got divorced, and that really... Gave me the opportunity to take a deep dive inside myself and and figure out, um, you know, what's best for me and what's what's gonna, you know, set me up in the long term for for success, mm-hmm. uh, not a business level, but just a personal 
level. And that's when I realized, um, you know, that I had the tools to change. I was not used to failing at the time. I was, you know, I could pretty much fix anything or do whatever I seemed like I wanted to at the time to some level of success. But with my marriage, I couldn't make it work. I tried as hard as I could. I could not make it work. So I really took a deep dive into that and um, going to uh, therapy and workshops and got into yoga and meditation. And uh, eventually what I found there was um, I found that it all was a mirror back on me and that um, that I had to find I had to find love for myself first. Hmm. Um before I could really project love. And I had to forgive myself for everything that I did that I regretted. And I had to have compassion for myself. And once I, I got that in my head, then I started paying attention how I would act. And and uh, sure enough, like there were times, you know, you'd wake up and, and um, I'm in a very competitive business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's everything that comes with that fear and, uh, backstabbing and talking smack about each other and all that stuff. But I realized that when I was really being super hard on other people and I'd have these days where like, no matter whatever you did, it's like, Oh man, why are you doing that? You know, I would, it would be a, uh, a flag for me to look at myself. And then if I was hard on myself, I realized that's when I was being hard on other people. Hmm. So that was always a good lesson to me. When I when I found out I was being hard on other people, I just turned it back on myself and I would do little exercises like mirror affirmations or whatever and I would just give myself love and just mm-hmm. say, "Andy, you know what? You're doing a great job. Mm-hmm. You know, you you're all right, man. You you know, you're a beautiful person. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying your best, you know, you're 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 doing good when you can and and you're doing all right." And just these little pep talks I'd give to myself. I would give myself a break, and then it was so much easier to give everybody else a break. I was like, I no longer was carrying this angst with me. When I finally forgive myself and love myself, I could really love and forgive anybody else for doing anything. Hmm. So it was a hugely profound moment for me. So that's kind of when I realized that um, this is the path I need to take of love, self-love, and, and projecting love, and that you know came to the the vigils mm-hmm. yeah and it's also informed a book that you're working on yeah so uh at the vigils uh that uncomfortableness i wanted to help and so i wanted to do something so what i first started doing was i'd started um you know on facebook it was the height of the angst on facebook and so I decided what I was going to do well, is I was. Can you say a little bit what that means? The your uh, personal angst on Facebook during that. Yeah, time? it was just you know the racists were emboldened. Um, they were saying a lot of stuff on Facebook. Um, my conservative friends were very dug in in and on their opinions, and it didn't seem like like there was any um, compromise. Nobody was. Everything was was hate and battle and fight, you know, mm-hmm. fight. This is my opinion and F you if it's not your opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just I saw it as an opportunity because um, 
I had a lot of conservative friends and a lot of people that were white supremacist and racist. And, hmm. and I decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit these people with um, my truth and I'm going to do it with love and conviction. Mm-hmm. And um, what, what would that look like? Um, I would talk about love and talk about, um, you know, doing what's right for other people and right for the group and, and doing things, um, not out of hate and, um, of, of embracing diversity and anti-bigotry and Mm -hmm. anti-racism and all this stuff. And I would just, you know, it was a COVID year, so I had that year off. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of times I'd go to the vigils, I'd come home and I'd just work on things I was going to say on Facebook. And and then I, at that time, I started just friending everybody I could. Mm-hmm. And I'd go through and I'd read people's posts. And if they were somewhat racist, whatever, I'd friend them. So I was, I wanted to engage. Hmm. I wanted to engage. And I tried to, en- tried my best, not always succeeding, but I tried to engage these folks with love and compassion for them first off and listening to them asking them what do they think you know and and this is what i think what do you think what are your concerns why do you feel this way how do you think what impact do you think your words have Mm -hmm. by saying these these awful negative things and um it was hard man really hard i remember you coming to the group and talking about how painful some of this was for you yeah it really was. And, you know, uh, unintended consequence I had, that, like I had liberal friends that were fiercely um, loyal to me and that would back me up. And I also had conservative friends that were very outspoken. And I would say these things in the two groups we get conversing, and it got ugly, mm-hmm. really ugly. Mm-hmm. And on Facebook messaging, like, I couldn't believe how how bad it turned, and I was like, I really had to start like assessing, like, am I creating more trauma? Hmm. Or am I doing anything good here? And I would have to resort to things like, you know, when these posts were going really bad, I'd, I'd write right in the comments, I'd write, you know, may this be transformed into love and light. Hmm. May this conversation be transformed into love or light. And then someone would come back and slam somebody else, and and grip how they look and their parents and all this stuff. And I just keep writing, may this be transformed into love and light. And, um, it did, you know, at the end it it did. I realized my liberal friends and my, my very conservative friends, you know, if we got right down to it and said, what do you want? What do you want in life? What are your concerns? The same concerns. Mm -hmm. They wanted the same things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I realized, you know, in all the travel I've done with my job, too, it's the same things. Like, you go to these countries where you're scared to death before you go, you know, Russia and China, and and then you start hanging out with the people, and you just realize that we're all the same. Hmm. You know, we all want the same thing. Hmm. We want to be heard. We want to be loved. We want to laugh. We want to have fun. We want to connect. So that's how I started writing this book, Love 411. Love 411. Where yeah, the, where the title come from? Uh, it's just like you know the old four one one information. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people get it. Maybe I should change. It. I don't know, but um, <laughs> <laughs> just sort of love information. You know, like what has worked for me, and you know, I learned all these tricks of self survival, and um, so I was just like, let me just put these all down in a pamphlet for kids. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I thought it'd take two weeks and I'd get it done, and now we're a year and a half later, and I'm still <laughs> like. It's challenging the heck out of me. But as I delve into it deeper, um, you know, it was all anecdotal at first. Like, 
my story with you. And yep. then I realized once I started digging deeper into it that all this stuff is based on science. Mm-hmm. Um, something that is related to the uh, polyvagus nerve, mm-hmm. uh, the vagus nerve, and the polyvagal theory, um, which Deb Dana and Stephen Porges did all the work, and I just kind of read up on it. I'm like, well, this is empowering to me because all these things I was doing, there's actually science based behind it. And the vagus nerve is, it's a cranial nerve. It's number 10 of 12. It starts in the base of your skull. Mm -hmm. It comes down, it wraps around your ear, goes down on your neck, comes down around, wraps around your heart, Mm -hmm. and then goes down to your gut and it wraps all around your gut. Mm -hmm. And this is nerve. Um, it's It's the basis for all our actions and behaviors in in life it has everything it's fight or flight Mm -hmm. it has feelings with um vivaciousness and love and connection and also disconnection and disappear and all this stuff is controlled by the vagus nerve so and from what i understand andy when people talk you know about that feeling i have in my gut or paying attention to my gut that's actually the vagus that's the vagus nerve yeah Hmm. that's the based on the polyvagal theory it's like and that's what happens with fight or flight. You're, you know, the vagus nerve is there to help you survive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it doesn't think rationally and say, you know, this group of people is not going to harm you. I'm still going to make you react like in running or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's just um, once I realized that the things I were doing were actually calming the vagus nerve or making a change in my body Mm -hmm. and i read it that like this is actually backed by science then i kind of ended up in a whole new realm with the book so um how how was this being received so far by the people you're showing it to you know this project i've you know it's 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 amazing how the people were lining up to help with this project. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I've, I've written screenplays and I've written songs and I've tried to sell everything and it's just like shut down, shut down. You know, you shut down every every step of the way. With this project, it seems like it's just lining up. Wow. People are just, you know, if I say I need a teacher to help me with this, all of a sudden I'm walking out and say, hi, I'm a teacher. You know, <laughs> people just appear, whatever help I need, and it just continues with that right now i'm working with i'm I'm fortunate enough to be working with some of um fred rogers people Mm -hmm. that are going to put me in touch with um child development people and um that's something i needed and then they just appeared so it's really getting received very well from people that want to help as far as how it's being received by consumers or or people that i want to get it in the hands from i don't know yet Mm because i really haven't been there and i'll just add that you know this isn't a money thing for me i'm doing this just to try to get it in front of as many eyeballs as possible and hopefully we can help some people so if this all plays out the way you'd like it to what ends up happening with your book well i want to get it into schools as a program where teachers there's like right now i have maybe 25 exercises um i want to get into schools where a teacher can do one in the morning Mm -hmm. and refer to it throughout the day or they can do two or three or four and um you know do it with the kids and give the kids this this training and these tools that they can always snap themselves back whether it be mirror affirmations or or um energy work or or breath work or um like we can do 
one. You want to do one exercise right sure. now? Sure. Okay. Should we invite your listeners to do it Everybody, as well? Everybody, we can do this together. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is a classic example of vagus nerve. So first, put your hand on your belly. And as you breathe in or out, feel when you breathe in, your belly expands. And then when you when you breathe out, your belly goes in. So you're paying attention to your breath right away. So let's start taking deeper breaths and breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Okay, now your next breath, I want you to inhale deep. And at the top of your breath, I want you to hold your breath. And I want you to get a look in your eyes of serene eyes, serene loving eyes. And then I want you to do a big smile. And then exhale with a big sigh. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) It feels good, right? It does feel good. It feels good. That's the vagus nerve. Wow. Now, that is like the joy and vivacious connection with the vagus nerve, Mm -hmm. but also it can can lead to things to shut you down and make Mm -hmm. you disappear. So the exercises in there are very simple, they're fun, and they're very effective. Hopefully, they can help other people the way they have helped me. Andy, that was great. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, We look forward to the release of Love 411. And thanks to you at home for listening again to another episode of Shed. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. It is produced by Eric Adams, Bill Evel, Chris Fisher, Amy Schumer, and Jack Ebby with audio production by Anthony Esposito and Dana Edelman.